I've, I've loved him since I saw that movie for the first time, and I was excited to see him in this role. But other than that, I thought it was very beautiful and probably better than anything I could do at this point <laughs> Pro in time. Probably. <laughs> I will preface it saying I even knew the end result because I knew who the killer was. Welcome to Backseat Directing. Where we talk about movies, TV shows, comics, and more. We're your hosts, Andrew and Aaron. And we put out new episodes every Monday and Thursday. And on today's episode, we're doing a movie review on Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Three, two, one, action. Andrew, how was your Christmas? Oh, my Christmas was amazing. I got so many great gifts from my loved ones, and I got to see them open up uh, all the things I got for them. My mom cried three times when <laughs> opening up different gifts from me, so I was very oh, sweet. proud um, to made her get emotional on Christmas. How was your holiday season? It was good. It was good. Just hanging out with family, not doing so much work. It's always a good time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's so nice to have the excuse to spend time spend time with family and like us being all about movies. I feel kind of like a loser because I didn't really watch any holiday films. I need to watch what is it, Spirited? Yeah, um, I'm sure I'll watch that before the year's over because my whole family wants to watch it. What's that um, one Santa one? Uh, Violent. Violent night. Violent yeah, night. I've heard that. I've heard good things about David Harbor in the movie. I feel like yeah. that looks interesting. And then there's also is it called something Red? Red one is a, is a movie with Dwayne Johnson. Oh yeah. And J.K. Simmons as Santa. But that's not this year. Oh, is that They're coming filming. out next year? I'm. I just. Yeah. That's just. What I'm seeing behind the scenes because I have followed Dwayne Johnson on Instagram. Right. So that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, that comes out. I'm assuming next year, next yeah. Christmas. Um, it wouldn't make but, sense for it to come out in July, so... Yeah. <laughs> Comes out in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> this summer. A Christmas film. Um, all right. Glass Out, Knives Out Mystery. Glass, Glass Onion, onion the the Knives, Knives Out, out Mystery. mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Came out on the 23rd, so just before Christmas. I was super excited for this movie to come out. We've talked about it before, about this being one of the projects that we're looking forward to. Um... I watched the first Knives Out uh, back when it first came out, and you hadn't seen it yet. So before this movie came out, you watched Knives Out. What'd you think of that one? Yeah, it's a funny story too, because we we set up like a schedule for ourselves of all the movies that we had to watch. Um, for like, there's a ton of movies that we had to watch before the end of the year to get ready for our end of the year episode and to get ready for new episodes. So like. We both watched like six movies because you watched the first Top Gun, I watched the first Avatar to. I rewatched the first Avatar. I watched Knives Out for the first time. You watched The Matrix. We both watched everything everywhere all at once. Like we both watched, like I said, like six movies. And this being one of those movies, Knives Out was probably my favorite of all those movies that we like watched and rewatched. And I had never seen it before. I really enjoyed it. It's like feels like a classic whodunit, which is not a genre like I've seen a ton of times and you feel like the heavy inspiration that you can see Ryan jo Johnson talk about in interviews of Agatha Christie novels and that classic mystery spirit. Um, I've always loved Daniel Craig ever since I watched Casino Royale. I found him like so um, just interesting and, and you know enigmatic 
in that movie, like so much displayed on his face, um, kind of like a different kind of Bond. So I've, I've loved him since I saw that movie for the first time, and I was excited to see him in this role. And the not my introduction to Ana de Armas, because I already loved her from Blade Runner, but this is now my favorite performance of hers, and I feel like she really steals the show in this movie. Um, Oh, I'm sorry, in the original Knives Out, yeah, because that's what we're talking about now. Um, which, and then to see Michael Shannon appear, I was so excited. I love him. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the cast is huge. You get to see Captain America, Chris Evans shows up. Uh, the Ryan Johnson's phenomenal director working with Steven Yedlin, who is an above and beyond fantastic cinematographer. The movie is just like completely special. It's the the big things I, I love in the first Knives Out, the set design, the wardrobe and costuming, um, those two things tie together to really pull you into the universe. And it's like the best movie set I've probably ever seen. Like It was really cool, yeah, right? You've got big sci-fi movie sets and all this, but this is like a practical home with like the props, the knife, uh, you know, what, chair or wall. Yeah. That, yeah. And then all the, just the props. Really around, cool backdrop. Yeah, all the props around the house that make the house, like all these interesting rich people, knickknacks and paintings and books and bookshelves and ornate. It's, that movie is something to beat when you're putting out a sequel. Gosh, I, I wish I could rewatch it. it for the first time. <laughs> uh, I, I'm so glad I got to experience that this last month. It made me so excited when you texted me back saying that you really loved the movie. Um, I feel like sometimes you're hard to impress. You know, I would, you know, you know so I would tell you. I was I like, did it. yeah, right. I was <laughs> pumped up that you liked it as much as I did. Um, and maybe you could feel that excitement going into this next yeah. one of like why all year long I've been so excited for the sequel to come out. Um, we'll do a full episode on the original Knives Out too, hopefully, and we'll, we'll reference it, I'm sure, throughout this because it's it's what yeah. you're naturally. It's like when you watch a Joker performance, you're going to compare it to Heath Ledger, you're going to compare the original to the sequel. So, yeah, not absolutely. that Heath Ledger's the original Joker, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't want to get corrected on that. Yeah. But, before we go on, though, spoilers for both movies, just in yeah, case. So if you haven't seen safe. either, you know, like I feel like we shouldn't have to say spoilers. I feel like it's, it's a review, given, you yeah. know, but like. Uh, just in case. Just spoilers. In case. Spoilers yeah. ahead. Yes. Uh, I think that I I will preface it saying I even knew the end result because I knew who the killer was before watching the for first Knives Out. Out. The yeah. first one. Yeah. yeah. I had it had spoiled I, know, for I was me. really bummed out that you already <laughs> knew before you watched it. And I feel like that's what kind of turned you off from watching it, right? Partially, yeah. It. The, the thing that turned me off from watching it is just that I didn't go to see it in theaters. Yeah. And then I... I was always ready to watch it if it appeared on a streaming service. I just never happened to come across it. Yeah. And it's something that I always had in the bank of wanting to... The other thing, too, is Zach and I wanted to watch it together, and mm. we just never had the opportunity because yeah. him being a huge Chris Evans fan, we had talked about watching it. So our lining up our schedules, too, was like another variable. Right. And I just ended up watching it without him. Yeah. At, at this point, it's been so Poor long. Guy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I think he still hasn't seen it. But the... Even knowing that, even knowing the who the murderer is in the original Knives Out, going into watching the movie, I still felt so wrapped up in so many twists and turns, and not even just in the sense of, oh, like, I'm caught up in this movie, I'm, but in the sense of, like, wait, how what? is that the killer? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how did, how, I, it still manages to confuse you even when you've already been given the answer. So that's, I feel like, the mark of a really good whodunit and mystery. Yeah, I love, they do a really good job of, kind of distracting you from like what's actually happening 
Yeah. And like giving you just enough information where you feel like you can follow, but then hiding some information to where it's like, you don't really know what's going on. Yeah. You know, which is cool because you can try to solve the mystery, but you kind of can't, which is good because then the characters in the show can solve it. Yeah, well, I mean, again, spoiler alert for the movie, but ha- about halfway, th- a- a- yeah, my bad, a- about, <laughs> but about a little variance, but about a third to halfway through each of these movies, you get like a flashback or where they flip the script of the story on you, where yeah. you're, you're thinking, okay, here are my suspects. Maybe here's who I think it is. And then the flashback with Marta in the first movie and then the flashback with Helen in Glass Onion completely changes the direction of the movie. And that's something that uh, Miles Braun, Edward Norton's character, talks about in Glass Onion, when he talks about the concept of the disruptors, he says everything is flowing in one direction, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says the, the basically the current's moving this way, and being a disruptor means challenging that and going in and completely changing direction when people don't expect you to. And that, I feel like, was Ryan Johnson talking about his writing styles for these movies when he wrote that, that disruptor speech, because he's being a disruptor as a writer when he hits you with the flashback with Helen and now he's completely disrupted the plot and puts you on to like, he, he says too with the Agatha Christie inspiration that he felt like she would like change settings in the mystery and then also try to keep the audience on their toes by completely subverting the story and changing where you thought the direction was going. So I feel like that's something enjoyable on the ride for this movie. Yeah. This movie was a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. What what uh, happens? Let's go over a synopsis. Is that where you're yeah. going next? Quick little summary. We are following... Uh, Benoit Blanc. Benoit Blanc. Thank you. Uh, he gets a mystery package sent to him at the door. And it is like this puzzle box. And it basically, once you solve the puzzle, there's an invitation to go to a private island of billionaire Miles Braun. And he invites... Was it six people? Is there six? I think it's five of his closest friends. And I think that Peg gets invited along as well as the way (laughs) it's framed. Uh, So they they all get to go to this island to solve a uh, whodunit murder mystery um, game weekend. You know, so I think it was kind of clever how a murder mystery movie is inviting these people to come play a murder mystery game. Uh, Meta. So, so right, exactly. <laughs> um, and all these people that got invited are all very eclectic, very original characters, all diverse, um, and they all have one thing in common, and that's Miles Braun. Um, they there's a lot of tension throughout the whole kind of introduction to each of these characters. They all are familiar with each other, but you can tell they're not all friends. So it, it's kind of off that they're all on this island and then um miles introduces or gives them a tour of the island shows them around the glass onion which is this beautiful mansion that he's built on this greek island um that kind of looks like a glass onion and it's named after a bar that all these friends used to go to Uh, from there he's starting to explain the game and as soon as he says the game is on, LeBlanc is like, this is, how, this is who did it. <laughs> and he solves the game right away. And My favorite scene in the movie. Yeah, it was so good. <laughs> um, 
And then basically they realize that someone is actually trying to kill someone. And then from there, we can kind of dive into like what exactly happens. But yeah, he, uh, Blanc pulls Braun to the side and is like, all these people have murder or motive to actually murder you. It's like putting a loaded gun on the table and turning out the lights. lights. Yes. <laughs> Which was a really cool line, especially from what happens later on. In Foreshadowing when you consider that also. Yeah, it makes it even yeah. better. So we'll dive a little more into the story because from this point on, it kind of gets into the actual mystery of it. But before we do that, I want to kind of go into some of the stats of the movie. This movie came out this year. It was released in theaters, but only for like a month or two um, and only in select theaters. So it wasn't a big like worldwide release Release. like most movies are um, or even the prequel to this movie was. it's rated PG-13, it's two hours and 19 minutes long. On IMDb, it is a 7.4 out of 10. And on Rotten Tomatoes, for both the tomato meter and the audience score, they have it at a 93%, which has to be one of the highest uh, Rotten Tomato uh, measurements that we've talked about for a movie. Like, for both of them being that high, 93%. Yeah. That's like really high for both of them to agree. Um, and then this movie had a smaller budget of $40 million and then worldwide it only grossed $13.3 million. So not a lot in terms of kind of return from the box office, but this movie was bought by Netflix. So they were kind of marketing this as a Netflix release. And that came out a few days ago on the 23rd of December. So I think that was one of the big reasons why a lot of people didn't go to the theaters. It's why I didn't try to go to the theaters to see it because I knew it was going to be on Netflix in like a month. Yes. Looking at the the viability and profitability of the movie, um, you talk about $40 million budget, $13 million in theaters, but that's kind of a marquee title for them now. Uh, for a release as a Netflix original on the platform, it's they they spent Netflix spent four hundred fifty million dollars for the rights to Knives Out two and Knives Out three, uh, Knives Out two just being a different way to describe Glass Onion, but they view it as a way to bring more people to the platform. So it's hard to measure that statistic like we talked about before on the show. But yeah, maybe it didn't make a lot of money in theaters, but maybe Netflix is making their money back in other ways with this having the rights to these stories. Yeah, I feel like the money that was made in theaters was kind of like bonus money because the intention, like you said, was to have it come only on Netflix to where that's the only place you can get this. And now people want to go buy Netflix to watch this movie if they don't already have it or have five friends that already have an account. Yeah, I think they're looking up for... <laughs> is that the good one? I think they're looking to establish like flagship titles. They want it to be like, look, we have Stranger Things and we have Knives Out. Like yeah. That's their movie franchise now, their mystery whodunit. Right. And it's like, it's a very successful uh, box office movie from the first one. Um, you know, so, uh, I don't know exactly how it all works in terms of return investment for like Netflix, spending that much money, spending that much on the budget and all that stuff. I guess we'll know if they make Knives Out 3, right? I mean, they spent $450 million on the IP they have to... Yeah, I'm assuming that they're going to, right? If they bought the rights to it, um, I doubt they just wouldn't, wouldn't do that, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the statistics of... 
of the movie. Um, you want to kind of dive into the summary a little bit, and then later on we'll get into like some behind-the-scenes stuff, and then our backseat directing segment. Well, I still want to talk about the cast and crew. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, cast and crew. Who's in this movie? Thank so, you for reminding me. N- of course, of course. Um, so I want to talk about the cast first, which is a little topsy-turvy to what we normally do but i want to talk about the cast and the characters a little bit um because i think it's important in a mystery to like acknowledge the motivations and i think that'll tell us about the middle of the plot so that when we go back into the plot a lot of the work's done for us already so the so before you go on um i looked up knives out the first one to see what its box office was on the same budget 40 million dollars it made 312.9 million Huge success. So, pretty darn good. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I just wanted to have that comparison between the first and the second one. And honestly, my gut reaction to that movie, too, is that I would have given on to Armis uh, uh, an Oscar or something for that. <laughs> it was, I thought her performance of the ability to cry on command and uh, just like all the emotional layers to that you've got to play in a mystery when there's characters and audience have different amounts of information at different time i thought that she completely stole the show in that movie from everybody similar to how i feel janelle monet kind of steals the show in this movie as well and i think that's kind of intended in the writing but the cast of glass onion consists of daniel craig as benoit blanc returning our only as far as i can tell returning cast member uh interesting right yeah uh, kind of unusual for a sequel yeah like only one person from the first one is in the second one is there what other movies do that not that many right there's not one off the top of my head that i can think of that's Um, definitely unique a unique approach unless everyone else dies if it's a horror movie or something like that (laughs) right but the so janelle monet is andy brand cassandra andy brand edward norton hey alex edward norton is miles braun Catherine hahn is claire de bella Leslie Odom Jr. is Lionel Toussaint, the scientist, presumably Dr. Lionel Toussaint. Uh, Kate Hudson is Birdie J. Dave Hudson is Duke Cody. Jessica Henwick as Peg. Madeline Klein is Whiskey. Jackie Hoffman is Ma. Uh, she's Duke's mother. Dallas Roberts as Devin DeBella. Uh, interesting appearance from Ethan Hawke in this movie. His credited title is Efficient Man. Uh, <laughs> He's the guy who sprays them with some surprise men in black-esque yeah, chemical right? that apparently makes it impossible for them to spread the uh, COVID. I know. Brooke and I like looked at each other and we're like, is that, is that even hot? I was, I was like, I was so shocked to see him not come back later in the right? movie. I was yeah. like, why isn't he coming back? How'd they get him to do that? Crazy, huh? Yeah, just, I guess, I mean, people are excited to work with Ryan Johnson. Edward Norton said the reason he signed on to the project was Ryan Johnson, the director and writer. He said he's on a short list of people that no, no matter, matter what, what he call called up, yeah, he would take the job. And Edward Norton is kind of like a well-respected name himself, so right. I feel like it's a high compliment. Um, Hugh Grant is Philip, which appears to be Benoit Blanc's husband. Yes. Uh, yeah. I thought that too. Yeah, that's... Yep. I asked Brooke... Uh, when we were watching it, I was like, is he gay? That's, yeah. It, okay, it, cool. Because it's not something they touched on at all in the first film. So. Yeah, not at all. It was very subtle, which I think was... Yeah, I, I like the fact, and I think that's the key like to Like it wasn't that, in your face. You know? uh, yeah, I think that's the key to representation in media moving forward is um, to not... It doesn't have to be treated as that person's personality. Because in real life, 
everyone is three-dimensional you know yeah if you are a homosexual man that is not the only aspect of your personality it's one aspect of your personality so it's it's not something that they have to like prepare the audience for or uh describe for them he just has he lives with philip we assume they're husbands like we would assume if a woman answered the door of his home yeah to a visitor like it's so i thought that it's it's just more for us to learn about Benoit. We yeah. really know very little about him in right. in the first movie. So the and then this one's interesting. So the the person who does who composes the music for both Nice Out movies is Nathan Johnson. It's the the cousin of um the the cousin of Ryan Johnson, the director. And he worked on another movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And then Joseph Gordon-Levitt worked, I think, with both of them on Looper. And so now Joseph Gordon-Levitt has small roles in both Knives Out movies where you would never know it's him. Um, He has, like, voice work in the first movie as, like, a background cop or something like that. And in this movie, Joseph Gordon-Levitt does the hourly dong. When you Every hour in the movie when you hear dong, that's Joseph Gordon-Levitt's voice. Really? Weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess he, on some Dumb. level, is familiar with them and knows them. Um, I think I put it in my cast here. I'm trying to see if I... Yeah, so he's he's credited in the first movie with voice of detective. Okay. <laughs> so strange. Um, and then Stephen Sondheim. All these, all these famous individuals play themselves. Stephen Sondheim, Natasha Lyonne, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Serena Williams, and Yo-Yo Ma... Of which somehow the only one of them that I noticed in the movie was Serena Williams. Same. I don't know if I completely wasn't paying attention to Miss Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but this is what IMDb yeah. said when I looked prior really? to the movie coming out on Netflix. Okay, yeah, Serena's the only one I. You can't miss too. Serena in the, in yeah. the movie. She has actual lines, but yeah. it was funny because it like looked like just a poster, and then he starts talking. She moves. She's like, "Are you guys gonna work out or what?" <laughs> I think Benoit is like, "Maybe later." Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Like, he's just paying for a session <laughs> with Serena, and they're not going to take it? For Sign real. me up. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great workout session from an Olympic athlete. Yeah, for real. But that's such an incredible cast. Like, I just went on for, like, three minutes on the cast. Yeah. Um, Who are you most excited to see in this movie? Maybe actor-wise, and then what character did you find most interesting? I want to hear about that. Um, I think I'm going to the movie for Daniel Craig. And then I'm staying in the movie for everyone else. You I think know, like everyone else on the main like five cast, great. You know, Dave Bautista did great. Kate Hudson was fun to see. Um, Dave Bautista always continues to be surprisingly talented. Right. And I think he's been too much comic relief in the MCU when he could be more than that. Not that there's anything wrong with comic relief, but I think he's shown. I'm excited to see Knock Knock. I think that he looks interesting in that. Which is a new M. Night Shyamalan movie, and I really liked him in the small role he had to play in uh, Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's definitely more dynamic than just Drax. Yeah. You know, from the MCU. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know if I have a favorite outside of Daniel yeah. Craig. I would say that I came for Daniel Craig and Edward Norton, and I stayed for Janelle Monet. Who I feel like was the surprise standout of the movie. Again, like Ana de Armas as Marta in the first movie, Janelle Monet really like 
I feel like she elevated her role, but I feel like she had like the juiciest written role as well. Yeah, um, she definitely had a dynamic character development arc, you know, um, compared to like Kate Hudson, you know, yeah. or even um, Catherine Hall. Yeah, or Han. Han. I've, Edward Norton does really good in all his roles too. I I love Edward Norton because of Fight Club, basically like the main reason why. Yeah. Um, but he's really great in American History X. There. This is kind of like a return movie for him, right? Like he hasn't been in anything in a little while. Yeah, I can't recall anything recent. I think that he's kind of in a position, artistically, where he can choose to be what he finds interesting. I think it's also pretty well known that he's. A little hard to work with, or at least has been in the past. Um, it probably depends on the picture, you yeah. know. But I think that I was really excited to see this cast. I want to go over their motivations so that we can follow this as we go along. Yep. So Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, just like in the first movie, his only motivation is the truth. He's an objective observer. He doesn't necessarily take sides, even though he might be hired by somebody. He wants to find the truth, and he doesn't take the law into his own hands like he talks about in the movie. He tells her he can lead her to the truth, and then he'll leave it in the hands of the authorities. Miles Braun uh, is a, a billionaire who owns a company called Alpha, and his motivation is to, to have sole ownership of the company and move forward with this new substance called Clear, and in doing so pushes his longtime close friend Andy Brown out of their company. Brown, not Brown, Brand, Andy Brand. Mm -hmm. Now, Andy Brand's motivation is to find proof to get her stake back in her company that she built, that she believes that she started, which the plot of the movie will come to tell you who truly did. Claire DeBella is a politician, which, just like in real life, her goal is CYA, which cover her ass <laughs> uh, she wants to protect herself she wants to look good in the media and the eyes of the public and Lionel Toussaint is a scientist so I think it seems like first and foremost he wants to contribute something to humanity discover something move the world forward and I think he wants to do it safely um, even if that the, the world might be pushing him in other directions Duke Cody's motivation seems to just be to build his platform his social media platform as a streamer male rights activist <laughs> uh, slash streamer uh, peg works for um, peg works for birdie uh, so i'll describe birdie first birdie um, is kind of a failed fashion icon who now owns a company called sweet pants that sells sweatpants um, she's a big personality, a big fashionista personality. Fine. Peg works for her, maybe as her publicist, it seems like, or assistant, personal assistant, yeah. secretary. Something like that. Um, Peg wants to protect herself. And in different ways, all of these friends are reliant. And, and then Whiskey is the, the girlfriend of Duke. Duke. And she also wants to try and grow her brand as well by working alongside Duke, who has a bigger following than her. But all of them are yeah, reliant. We need to hang out with Duke. True. <laughs> we need to hang out with Miles. Uh, maybe not. But all, all, all of them are reliant on Miles Braun because his wealth and resources gives them access to grow their platform. Because uh, Toussaint needs Braun in order to fund his research, and Claire needs Braun in order to fund her campaigns, and Duke gets funded by Braun to grow his platform on YouTube and then whiskey is dependent on Duke. So they're all like 
uh, Andy says, suckling at the golden teat of Miles Braun. So that's kind of where all their motivations lie and what leads the and leads and necessitates this plot of who would have motivation to kill who because they rely on each other, but in some instances, Miles is, mani- Miles is manipulating, controlling them, using their reliance on him. Yeah. Um, what was your kind of favorite part of like the mystery? You know, like which character were you most like, I'm not sure about them. You know what I mean? I would say I was most unsure about Lionel Toussaint because I feel like he had so few lines. And they kind of threw you with a misdirect having different things where he would like appear in a hallway and like it was like a teaser for you to think something might have happened. Yeah. I was really curious about him because of how little we saw of him. Yeah. I was like kind of in the beginning, I was trying to get a read on everyone. But then after uh, Blanc and Braun started talking to themselves in private, I was kind of suspicious of Miles Braun, you know, that like he has some sort of involvement like he may not be the only one in danger here was there anything he said that made you suspicious at that point i just felt like things were a little uneasy the thing that really made me suspicious was when duke died and he was right next to him i looked over at my wife and i was like what if miles braun just killed duke yeah i see i thought it was strange and i still think it was strange that they have that conversation. Everyone gets introduced, and and Benoit goes up to the glass onion with Braun, and Braun is just excited to have him there. And he says, oh, the world's greatest detective here for my murder mystery, which I don't feel like made sense and still is confusing to me because the world's greatest detective is there. The, per- the woman he murdered is there, and mm-hmm. he knows she can't be there because he murdered her. So he- Yeah, we're, we're kind of like jumping a little bit. Who's murdered? Uh, Cassandra E. Brand was murdered. Yes. So, uh, Andy was the one. Is she the twin sister? She is the one who owns the company. Helen is the twin who lived in Alabama. Right. So, to clear up the the plot as we go through, because this is something that I want to touch on right now because I'm confused by it. I don't want to rush past it. Okay. Um, So, ultimately, the... The plot goes back and forth. We have a whodunit mystery, but what they reveal to us by the end of the movie is that our murderer is... That was your chance to pause it. Miles Braun. Um, Miles Braun is the murderer. He killed Andy Brand. But when he he has uh, Benoit show up and he knows he didn't send him an invitation, he plainly could just send him back home. And maybe just out of not wanting to look suspicious, but he genuinely seemed excited saying, oh, the world's greatest detective here to, at my mystery uh, death dinner party, my, my investigation that I've made up. And to me, that was kind of odd if he was going to end up being the killer, that he wouldn't have like a different reaction. But I guess you could say he hit it really well. Yeah, I feel like it... I don't know. He's yeah. a billionaire, yeah. right? He's, yeah. he's yeah. cocky. He's arrogant. You know, he thinks he can probably get away with anything. They also say he's not that intelligent. Yeah, but he... So that's another reason that he might be overly cocky. Right. And, and and be excited to have him there if he doesn't think there's a chance he can be caught. Yeah. I think he's kind of playing, you know, and... and I feel like he should have been more wary after the his murder victim showed up at his party as a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would have, for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, 
already we've mentioned a few of my favorite twists. Um, the first one was that Miles Braun didn't invite him there. You know, and I was like, oh, okay, then who did? And it was kind of like uh, a throwback to the first Knives Out where someone hired him, but we don't know who. Yeah, he says to he says to, to Miles Braun that an unknown invitation can be a bad thing. I have experience with it or something like that, referencing yeah. the first movie. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. Um, and then the big twist of the whole thing was that Andy had a twin sister, Helen. Um, I for sure thought Andy was dead when uh, she got shot. You know. Oh yeah, that, that twist as well. Yeah. yeah, so we've already talked about a bunch of twists already. You know, and like it's kind of hard to talk about one part of this movie without having to reference another because, like the title says, the whole plot is a glass onion. Everything's connected to each other. You can pull layer after layer after layer. You know, and it's it's a very complex story. You know, which is fun to try to figure out. It's like you're there, kind of solving the mystery with them. You know. Yeah. So throughout the movie. Um who do you who did you think was the culprit as the movie goes along? Um, in the beginning, I wasn't so sure about Andy because she was like obviously um, standoff from everyone, you know, and no one really liked her. So it's like, why is she there? Kind of thing. Why did she show up? Why did she get an invitation in the first place? Well. She was, she's still considered one of his closest friends, so I assume that's why. He yeah, could, but she's clearly not his friend. Yeah, she's done being his friend, but he's still... I feel like... But he was even surprised that she showed up. Well, she did. Get, she, he did make an invitation for her, though. Yeah. He wasn't surprised that she got invited. He was surprised she, she, surprised she showed up. Right. Like they said, the question isn't why she's invited. The question is why she showed up. Right. I'm sure he sent the invitation. I guess he was surprised because... He killed her already. Yeah. <laughs> so I, he was surprised I, to see. I think he's. I think he sent the invitation expecting. Interesting. No one to was, show was up. Was the invitation right? sent after he had killed her? I don't know. That's a. That's another interesting question. If he, maybe he hadn't planned to kill her and had the invitation made, or if he just sent it. Well, it wasn't open when uh, Helen was going through it, right? Because she. Busted through well, the box. Helen received it. Helen. Which one's Helen? Helen is the sister from Alabama, and she's the one, the one who, who lived. Lived. She okay. she actually picked got it from the door from the person who delivered it. Right. So then, she had to have already been dead. Yeah, I think she. I, because she had only died about a week before. Right, but, but making those boxes Helen had wasn't to, there. Like making those boxes had to be set in motion well before that, though. So you'd think. I mean, something I that something that something take, that complicated. I love you the boxes. Think that it would take a while. I love sure. the boxes of, as a plot element. Yeah, and it was funny to then see Helen just destroy hers. Yes, but seeing them like with all the so they even showed the chessboard in one, and they were like, "It's a mate in one." That's the clue. Mm-hmm. Um, which interest I always find interesting when they put chess in movies because it's always something strange but she called it a chess end game when really it was a chess opening because what they yeah. showed on the board was a scholar's mate which is the quickest possible checkmate in a game of chess it's mm-hmm. like in like four moves yeah so calling it an end game kind of interesting because it's an it's just an early mate right 
the, the earliest. <laughs> yeah, humanly possible in a game of chess. We had our uh, stint with chess. After watching that. Queen's Gambit. Yeah, yeah. We, we played chess probably every day for, what, like two months or so? Yeah. <laughs> I miss back it. And forth. I miss it. Chess.com yeah. is fun. That's probably one of the things that we like first overly bonded over, you know, where we were like kind of interacting with each other every day. Yeah, we were like, nobody else wants other. to play chess with us. I guess we'll be friends. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's good to have another nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those boxes were such an interesting, intricate, beautiful story. It's another one of the things like we talked about with the original Knives Out is just a, a, amazing prop work yeah. on the set. I love how she just beat it to pieces. <laughs> yeah, it was great. My wife was like, that's how I would have opened it. At the end, she's like, "There." She's like, I'm sure there's a fancy way to open it, but this is how I did it. Yeah. Luckily, nothing was in it that she was supposed to receive that would have broke. Yeah. You know, but at, at that Just point, she's probably so mad that her sister is dead. You know? Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I feel like I get the idea she probably would have known that it was from Miles as well. Because yeah. everyone else knew it was from Miles, and she probably knew Andy well enough to know what that would be from as well. Yeah. But yeah, so I was a little like iffy about Andy. I didn't really know what was going on with her. Obviously, something was up. Um, but then, as soon as Duke died, I really was like over to my wife, and I was like, "What if Miles did it?" You know, like I don't know. It just seemed to happen so like back and forth. I know? still was not caught on to who the criminal was, especially I think they jarred me with the fact that the first half of the movie is convincing you that it's solving the cons murder conspiracy towards Miles Braun, right. and then they switch it to solving Andy's murder, like we talked about with the disrupting. Yeah. Like, that was the disruptor move, is flipping the script on you, and it's a totally different murder case now. And then I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Now who am I suspicious of? Because I had different points in the plot of the movie. I was suspicious of whiskey. Um, mm -hmm. I was. I don't think I was ever suspicious of Duke or Claire, but I was suspicious of whiskey. Suspicious of Toussaint. Suspicious of Miles Braun. Uh, Miles Braun. Um, what about Birdie? I was suspicious her? of Birdie as well, only because of one small detail that I thought was a clue. They say when. Um, everyone goes to the house to check on Andy that everyone showed up at once and they say, and then Birdie came back later. So if Birdie yeah. was the last person to come, like she would have found, I feel like some kind of clue, like when the whole group showed up there together, you couldn't have killed her and then left, you know, it, it would have had in that, in my eyes, it would have had to have been Birdie as the last one to come back later and leave her there by herself. Yeah. So that's what the only she already I too has like some questionable morals. As well as she. Well, I think I think she's not stupidity. I think she's I just stupid. At <laughs> part, yeah, <laughs> you didn't think a sweatshop was where sweatpants are made. <laughs> uh, well, you know what I thought was I thought the funniest part in this movie involved Birdie when she's kind of like flirting with Benoit Blanc and she like feels the collar of his shirt and she's like, oh, I love this material. What is it? And just cotton. <laughs> I, I believe it's cotton. <laughs> <laughs> just gotten <It's> so funny <laughs> yeah it's great it's great um what do you think of like the the set design cinematography and kind of like the the behind the scenes stuff of the movie yeah so let's talk about who's involved in that because i've neglected to circle back to that in so far so the director and writer of both knives out movies is ryan johnson who also uh directed The Last Jedi, directed Looper. Um, he is kind of like the keystone fixture to both Knives Out and Glass Onion, and I think he's what makes them work. Obviously, writing them and directing them, it's entirely his creative vision, uh, with the help of a lot of other creatives, but 
he is like the architect and the foreman. Yeah. You know, he's, I feel like it's, you get the best work when the writer is also the director. Because they're creating what they imagined in their brain. Yeah, and then since it's their story, they can articulate to the actors and the cinematographers and all the people on set of what their vision for the movie actually is. You know, like if you were to write something and then I was to explain it to someone else and direct them through it, like, it might not be the same as it would be if it was coming from you. Yeah, it'd be absolutely different. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's like uh, when they used to tell stories, like oral storytelling traditions. Yeah. It's like it changes the story. Isn't that weird that some writers don't direct their own scripts? Strange. Yeah, I would want to. You'd want, like, that's yeah. your baby. I feel like if I were to ever write anything, like a short story or movie or whatever, like, I would definitely want to direct it, you yeah. know, like... It's interesting. Yeah. The, the, I, it's hard to say too though, because I could kind of see myself as more of a writer than a director. But the so his work on the original Knives Out earned an Oscar nomination for best original screenplay. Unfortunately, did not win that year. But so still an honor to be nominated, as everyone says. But we'll see for Glass Onion because it's too early to tell. But cinematographer on both of these movies which is cool that they kept the same main uh creatives on the movie it's kind of good that they did since they have a whole new cast yeah. i mean you gotta you keep something some familiar. things the same that way it feels like the same movie yeah i mean they're already switching uh scenes and locations so drastically you know like it's it's good that they yeah, the other Kept some of the same cast and crew, or some of the crew, yeah. the same. The new actors in the movies talk about leaning on uh, Daniel Craig and Ryan Johnson because the everyone else is not everyone else, but all of the other cast members at least are new, new to yeah. join. Uh, yeah, besides Joseph Gordon-Levitt, of course. <laughs> yeah, in an interview uh, with the director uh, Ryan, he was saying that at one point him and Daniel Craig got together and they're like, "I don't know what we're doing." But it feels like the first one. Let's not talk about it, and let's just keep doing. What we're doing. <laughs> you know, like let's not ruin anything. Let's just keep it up. That's so funny. <laughs> uh, but so then the the cinematographer of both movies is Stephen Yedlin. He did as well Looper, San Andreas, Carrie, um, and then Nathan Johnson, Ryan Johnson's cousin, uh, is does the music for this film. He also does music for Don John, which is how I reference. He worked with Just Gordon Levitt mm-hmm. earlier uh, for Looper, and he's like I said, done music for both of these films. Um, those are the main individuals behind the camera that I wanted to talk about. I mean, in terms of comparing the movies, I didn't feel as strongly about the cinematography done in Glass Onion as I did in Knives Out. Um, the music, I feel like, is still phenomenal. The sound design, like the Foley work mm-hmm. and any mm-hmm. like dubbing or sound, because anytime these characters are wearing a mask in the movie, I'm assuming that they're doing voiceover ADR work and then just adding in some form of effect or something in the recording studio to give that mask over quality, but to still make it clear. So yeah, maybe I feel, even as simple as wearing a mask, but yeah, now they're super close to a microphone. Like, exactly. Like, yeah, I feel like everything in that aspect, the audio aspect of the movie um, was just as high quality as the original film. That's a, a talent that I wish I could develop that I know I never will be able to is like, writing and developing my own song oh yeah such an impressive skill yeah i'm with you it's so cool like when i'm editing stuff for like my freelance stuff or even like the little tv show that we worked on like 
the sound design was something that was very interesting and exciting for me to do, but I'm just pulling sounds from uh, different resources and stuff. I'm yeah. not like composing it myself, you know? That's something that I think I'll never be able to do. <laughs> yeah, original <laughs> music I, is so important to a movie. Yeah, and I definitely respect anyone who could can do it. Like, and I admire um, their work too, you yeah. know? It, it, it gets baked into the DNA of the movie, like when it is made for that movie. Yeah, it it makes the movie um, not only feel, or it doesn't, it not only gives the movie like its energy and its feeling, but it also gives it its recognizability. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> that word wasn't a word, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. Inbreathiate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, I was talking with my wife the other day, like, you know what Avatar of the Way of Water or even the first Avatar is kind of missing in my eyes is like a recognizable theme song. Like, what's Avatar's theme song? Like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, like uh, all the Marvel movies and stuff, like the Avengers, Spider-Man, like they all have like a recognizable theme, Jurassic Park, like on your shirt. You know, like what's, what's Avatar's? Like, yeah, I couldn't play it in my head. It really should be more iconic. Yeah, and like the they're, they're building movies. this grand five-movie franchise. But I think James Horner composes the music. I think it's still good. I just I can't hear it in my head. Like the 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 music is good throughout the the movie and stuff, but I don't have a theme song in mind. Yeah. And even when I was like, you know, we take clips and stuff and we put them on TikTok and YouTube Shorts and stuff and. When we're making those, we gotta search a song. Well, normally we search the song that's from the movie that we're talking yeah. about. And I'm searching for the Avatar one, and I'm like, I don't remember the song. <laughs> like, I like the sound of it when know, I like, hear it. Yeah, um, but, but it's yeah. not as recognizable as some other ones. Definitely. Anyways, not. we're kind of going on a tangent. Back to the cinematography of Glass Onion. I just didn't feel like it was as strong as the first movie. But how did you feel? So. In the beginning, in the first act of the movie, when we're first getting introduced to all the characters on the island, so they already get to the island, um, I thought it was interesting that all the highlights were blown out. Um, so like, what that basically means is you have like a histogram, and on the right side of the histogram is your whites, and on the um, which is your highlights, and then on the left you have like all your blacks, which is the shadows and stuff. And the Further, the Instagram or histogram is to one side or another just dictates how much light and darkness is in your photo or your shot. And on Glass Onion, I bet you that histogram is very heavily towards the highlights to where at a certain point you get to where there's no more information there. It's just pure white, which at least to me, maybe it was just my TV, but the, the whole like sky is like blown out, super white. Like you don't see like... Uh, the blue shade of the sky. It just kind of looked like they didn't have a ND filter yeah. on their which camera. Is, which is interesting because they're filming on set. So they're filming on set in Greece and then they're filming on a stage in Serbia for scenes that are staged. Right. And so you'd think you would want that beautiful picturesque Greece, Grecian skyline. Like, like it looks like they're very actually clear. outside, but it looks like it was a day or something that they just couldn't expose for, which is weird for a big movie like this, which makes me think like, it had to be intentional, you know, like, I, I feel like, stick. yeah, like something like that doesn't just doesn't like slip through the cracks, you know, like if you wanted it to look like a, this 
big beautiful island like they would have made it happen so, for yeah. sure so i just thought that was interesting and it was something that i just couldn't stop paying attention to when we talked previously you mentioned how it was such a contrast from the original knives out which i think is part of the point because when you watch behind the scenes interviews they talk about how they wanted a like a scenic shift and a tonal shift and they're doing a new movie they don't they want they don't want to rehash all the same things. So they, the first movie is in New England, you know, maybe wintertime. It's darker hues uh, towards maybe the darker side of that, that histogram that you're talking about. But this movie is now, it's in the summer in Greece, and it's, it's beautiful, and the weather's nice, and it's vibrant outside. And they wanted to capture that summer feeling. So that's probably part of the feeling why they wanted it to feel brighter, in a sense, to feel like the energy of the sun, um, which is not as much felt in Knives Out as it is in Glass Onion. So I, that could be viewed as part of the intention behind it. Yeah, it, it could be. Um, I just It just didn't feel as cinematic to me as... Uh, the first movie did you know the first movie was like beautifully shot and um, I, I just didn't feel like it was on the same level at least for that first act once they got inside I thought it looked great you know and then especially once it was like nighttime and stuff like you're obviously not having your highlights blown out anymore because it's darker um, but I was just curious and I even tried to look up on YouTube like if there was anything about it like any interview or anything on it like why they decided to have it look that way or whatnot and I couldn't find anything off of the little search that I did I just thought it was interesting that it looked the way that it did in the beginning you know like even when they're out by the pool and stuff like their faces are really bright and like it looks like they were outside you know and um, all their skin too looked like it was very like saturated like they've been out in the sun for a while and that whatnot so like it looked really realistic it looked like you were actually there in a sense you know like um rather than watching a cinematic film right um but for me i just couldn't get over it i just (laughs) (laughs) distracted you throughout yeah i did um but other than that i thought it was very beautiful and probably better than anything i could do at this point probably (laughs) probably i like the problem so you want to go into our backseat directing segment where we talk about what we would like about the movie keep what we would change yeah let's do it i think that kind of kicked it off a little bit i think i would have uh tried to change that tried to take advantage of that beautiful island in greece you know and um put an nd filter on the end of the lens which is basically just a filter that goes on the lens. And I mean, they have super expensive cameras. So a lot of those cameras kind of have those built in as well. So it's just like sunglasses for the lens. Uh, That way you can keep all of your um, different measurements for your settings and stuff. You can keep them all within the the different rules and stuff that you want, like your shutter speed, your aperture and your ISO. You can keep all those at the correct levels while making the screen darker. Um, Because otherwise you'd have to like up your shutter speed a lot, which is just how fast, you know, that shutter closes. Um, So I think I would have changed that. I would have tried to make the sky look full and beautiful where you can see the water glistening in the background too and and stuff. Simple ways to do that. Simple <laughs> ways to do that could be with that filter. Um, it could be shooting at a slightly later time in the day, 
where the the sun isn't as harsh. Um, but I think it fit the vibe. I just wish I could have seen yeah. the scenery a little better. I wanted to talk to you about this because part of the reason that, like we just discussed, that they might shoot in this style and to make you feel that summer aesthetic is because Ryan Johnson wrote the film in 2020 during the pandemic in lockdown at home. And he said part of the reason he wrote it that way is because he wanted, he wished he was in Greece. Yeah. And he wrote it kind of like to himself, like, open on exterior in beautiful Greek island. Like, yeah. then maybe this movie will be made and I'll be <laughs> filming in Greece. Like, yeah. that was his dream at the time. That's a super cool, like, behind the scenes nugget of this yeah. movie. You know, he wrote like, it into existence. He wrote himself into being in Greece. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's brilliant. And, like, since he envisioned that is what you wanted to feel when you're trapped in home in the pandemic culture, that's what this movie brings to us, that feeling. And I think that that's definitely something that I would keep in the movie is the way that they inject the pandemic culture into the movie. Because like I talked with you about previously, a lot of movies, especially big budget blockbuster movies, are kind of ignoring the existence of the pandemic. Yeah. And I don't want to see it in every movie. It's no. It's been plenty enough of a problem in the real world. Yeah. But I thought it was actually interesting to see it injected into the plot of this movie, you right. know, like once in a while. So in a big blockbuster movie like this, I was interested to see them actually address it. And they kind of address the a lot of aspects of pandemic culture, the being locked inside your home and trapped with nothing to do Benoit feeling the despair and depression of having lost his purpose and not being able to go outside depression is something a lot of people struggled with and during the pandemic like he felt um, they touch on teaching your kids having to become your kids teachers or zoom classes like Helen talks about being a teacher and doing zoom and all these life adjustments we have to deal with they talk about they show Among Us, which was, uh, you know, <laughs> huge a, a huge yeah. pandemic game. So I think that they inject a lot of pandemic culture into this movie, which is something a lot of us can relate to having lived through and still in a lot of ways be living through the changes going on in the world due to the pandemic. And so that's something I definitely keep in this movie. But I would maybe change the way that the Ethan Hawke's character sprays them all in the throat with what they describe as the men in black device i feel like they could have just written something in the script where maybe he like rapid tested them or something because i feel like that was like on the verge of sci-fi like why does he have some magic throat spray that where you no longer have to work i get that it's, he's a billionaire and I get, that's what all the billionaires did it just seemed over the top <laughs> <laughs> it's like, i think it was enough though to where it was like okay i didn't question it like i know that they're all safe on this island you know like um, they needed a reason for the actors to take off their masks and act right. yeah. um, in a story and, that takes place during the pandemic. I accepted it. And I think if they would have done a COVID test and they all were negative, I would have accepted that too, I yeah. guess. you know. So did you want to talk about, while we're talking about that scene, how their different masks represent their different personalities? Cause yeah, I was going to piggyback off of you and say that another thing that they did really well was kind of identify each of the characters' personalities just based off of the mask that they wore, um, which is very relatable, you know? Like, we've all seen people that were wearing these different types of masks, and it kind of matches the same personalities, you know? Like, you had uh, LeBanc wearing the uh, very stylish mask, you know, the one that expresses his 
personality, you know, and a sense of style and um, whatnot. Uh, and then you had Birdie where uh, just like a little netting of a mask, you know, that's so it's Birdie. not it's not a mask. It's <laughs> it's just something over the face so she can claim that she's wearing a mask, you know, probably because. She doesn't believe the pandemic's real. Birdie's vain, you know? so yeah. she's showing everyone her face. Um, Duke didn't have a mask on. <laughs> <laughs> Just showed up, you know, and ready to go, ready to rock. Whiskey, same thing. I mean, her name kind of describes her personality yeah. right off the bat as well. And then Toussaint with that very scientific and professional N95 and yep, mask. Yep, and then Claire, she kind of had just a, a bland mask that kind of matched her outfit. Um, very yeah. beige was kind of her style choice for this character. Yeah. Catherine Hahn. They said she was so excited to work on a movie with uh, the, the new Knives Out movie where everyone was so fabulously dressed in the previous film. And she said she was walking by Kate Hudson's rack for Birdie. Yeah. And she was walking by Janelle Monae's rack for Andy. And they're just beautiful pieces Eccentric. of, of yeah. Yeah, fashion. And then she got to her rack and just... She had to accept that it was just beige. Yeah. Tans, <laughs> browns, yeah. Um, but yeah, her, her mask covered up her whole face. And even when she like saw that it was Blanc there, she got excited. Her mask started to slip and she quickly realized and kind of pulled it back yeah, up. The mask slipped away yeah. a little bit. You so know? Another thing we've all dealt with is the mask slipping and mask with glasses and all these different things that we've gotten used to over the time. Yeah, let's circle back to backseat directing. What else you got? We're only 10 minutes into the movie. Uh, so I know you have a lot more to add to it. What else? Yeah. So the main thing that I would keep for the movie is the storytelling method of kind of drawing you in and then misdirecting you. It's kind of like now you see me. It's, uh, you know, you think you're seeing one thing and then you spun around three times and pointed in another direction with this plot. And... Yeah, like a good example of that is like when you see Whiskey in the room with Miles Braun and you see Duke outside in the window and you're like, oh no, he just caught Whiskey cheating. But then later in the movie, it revealed that Duke sent Whiskey in there to try to get something from Miles Braun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like and they, he was, they kind of flipped yeah. the script on you. The real reason he was upset was denial to having an appearance on alpha news right that's what he heard yeah not what it's not what not what he saw it's what he heard so they do a great job of that there's beautiful set design again the glass onion looks great mm -hmm. um, the wardrobe is amazing for everyone besides Catherine Hahn <laughs> uh, which then, is still good it plays yeah. to her character really well and I like the their twist on the genre of it's not just the lights turn off somebody dies and who did it it's you think you're solving a murder conspiracy, then you find out you're solving a murder. Uh, so I think that twist really added a new cherry on top to this sequel. Uh, the thing that I would change uh, in Glass Onion is ultimately the fact that I feel like it has Raiders of the Lost Ark syndrome, where the main character doesn't overall have that much effect on the actual plot of the movie. Um, I love Benoit Blanc. I love... Uh, Daniel Craig and I just would have loved to see him take a more active role in this movie or at least solve the mystery like ultimately because I feel like the in the story of in the story of Knives Out Marta is steals the show is the star of the show but without Benoit Blanc we wouldn't have the solution of the mystery and the vindication of Marta by the end of the movie yeah 
I see what you're saying, uh, but it's all it's this whole movie is kind of like let's take what we did the first time and flip it on its head, you know. So this one's more of like LeBlanc is telling the story, you know, he's telling the story. It's from his perspective, uh, and he's assisting Helen in solving the mystery. <laughs> Alex is playing with Andrew's cord over here on the microphone. He's, he's, he's turning into play mode, which <laughs> might mean it's time to put him in the living room. <laughs> but you had some interesting perspective on... You had some interesting perspective on... Come here, no, Alex. No! He's dragging him out! Come here. You know, he's got his claws into both. But you had some interesting perspective on... Um, the reason why I might be kind of wrong on this point of view. Um, I, I think that, yes, it is interesting in the movie for them to kind of flip what we expect. Because at the very end, yes, Blanc is ultimately involved in the story, in inspiring Andy to, not Andy, inspiring Helen to take things into her own hands. But And he's, he's kind of like controlling things through her. You know, like he's telling her. He's directing her, but yeah. she's he's 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 basically saying, Go solve the mystery. Like he says, Go search their rooms, this and that. And I but I feel like the legwork I think it was more of like go find the evidence, not solve the mystery. Like I feel like he he was the one who figured out that Miles Braun killed Duke. And he figured out how he did it. He figured out that he basically stole his line turned off all the lights and put the gun in them, the hand, you know? Um, like, he figured all of that out, the mystery stuff. And then he just had Helen go get the evidence of the murder of her sister. Yeah. I just think that they, they lean pretty heavily on, like, the bumbling bumpkin detective who secretly knows all. And I think if at the end of the movie he doesn't prove that he's the smartest person in the room, then... I think he did, though. Based off of like what I just said, like he figured out who killed who and all that stuff. I just would have likened him, liked to see him take a more active role in the legwork. Because even in the first movie, I thought his methods were strange. I thought he may have known Marta was like involved or or in the room with uh, Chris Plummer's character in the from the get go from her sh the clue on her shoe, but he let her wander around with them. He let her erase the videotape. He did things that made it take longer to solve the mystery to where Fran ended up dying. And I feel like things like that could be seen as maybe like plot holes or Benoit maybe not being quite as good of a detective as he seems. And I think that I would have liked to see a more involved approach in this movie from him. Because he's laid back in the first movie too. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. And he kind of just lets the story unfold and observes. It's like He has the fly-on-the-wall character role. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying, for sure. And, um, I agree. I don't think it's as compelling of a story as the first one. Um, I, that, the first one is, like, top tier. One of my Absolutely. Favorite, one of my favorite movies, for sure. Um, and I'm so glad you finally watched it. Like, <laughs> it took long enough. That makes me excited, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had, I had Brooke watch it also because I originally watched it with my mom and then it took a little while for me to get my wife to watch it and then I finally got you to watch it so I'm excited that everyone's experienced the movie finally. <laughs> I don't think this one is as good. Um, I, I didn't think that the whole time though that 
he was just kind of there, not really moving the plot forward. I think he had a little bit more role in my eyes than kind of how you viewed it. But do you have any other backseat directing stuff for the movie? That's it for me. I don't do think I really have anything else besides yeah. the like cinematography and exposure and stuff yeah. in the beginning. I, I enjoyed the mystery and stuff, and I feel like coming up with that stuff is kind of difficult, you know, yeah. without making it cheesy or super obvious of what's going on. Like, I wonder how someone goes about constructing all of that. Like, do they work backwards, you know? I feel like that might be the one of the easier ways to do it is, like, kind of start from your finish line of what you want to happen and kind of fill in the blanks going backwards. Um, how would you kind of approach a, a murder mystery kind of like that? Yeah, I would do the same thing. I would decide who the killer was. So I'd create all the characters and their motivations. Um, and then I'd decide who's going to be the killer. And then I'd draw the line from that beginning to that end in a way that I felt like every character was doing what naturally fit the motivations I wrote for them. Yeah. So that they felt real. I think another thing that I enjoyed more about the first one than the second one was that the first one kind of stayed grounded in reality in terms of all practical stuff on set and then this one the ending kind of went that cgi route where the the whole glass onions on fire they michael bait it and all that stuff <laughs> you pay respect to his uh, name <laughs> but yeah they they did you know like yeah they, so just for the audience to remind you guys what ultimately happens in the movie is uh helen turns out to have been the one that invited benoit blanc onto the case because her sister andy brand supposedly committed suicide, but she does not believe that's the case. She hires Benoit Blanc. They go to the island with Helen under the guise of being Andy Brand, and Benoit sort of puppeteers and mentors Helen in solving the case. Uh, they ultimately unveil that the hidden piece that they needed, the napkin where Andy Brand designed the company Alpha, uh, is being held at that location because the group of friends revealed it to Miles Braun. So... Miles ultimately turns out to be the one who has the proof, turns out to be the one who killed uh, Andy and made it look like a suicide. And when he burns up that last piece of evidence right in, in, from Helen's hands, Benoit leaves the case in, in, Helen, uh, in Helen's hands, saying there's nothing else that I can do from here. Uh, I can only work within the confines of the law. And Helen from there chooses to just burn everything down for, uh, for Miles Braun. And in doing so, is going to eventually burn his company to the ground because she's proven the lack of sustainability with his new power source clear. Um, it burned down the house of the owner of the company when and it burned the actual Mona Lisa, um, which has a huge role to play in this film that we haven't touched on at all. But just the, the shuddering of the case opening that whoosh effect yeah. is another part of the sound design is, uh, it, it has kind of, a connection to you mm -hmm. or reminding you of the presence of the Mona Lisa all throughout the movie until right. it obviously as we can tell from the beginning becomes a huge plot point in the end being burned by clear and which will be the ruin of Alpha the company and then all the friends finally now turn on Miles Braun and are going to leave him out in the wind his life ruined hopefully some form of vengeance for Andy's death yeah it kind of comes full circle at the end where his name is mentioned in the same sentence as the Mona Lisa which what he is always what wanted. his desire was the yeah. whole time and now it is but just not in a positive light not in the way that he had hoped and right. foretold but with uh, a message of ruin 
Yeah. Overall, I highly recommend both of the Knives Out movies, um, but definitely that first one. That first one, though, is not on Netflix, which I was kind of surprised that they didn't get they, the yeah. rights to that one to play that. I feel like that would have been like a the obvious choice, you know? Cause and I, I had to pay for it. I know. To watch it. I know. And every time that I've seen it, I had to pay for it, too. And it's it's weird that they didn't somehow work that into the deal that they could also have the first one. I feel like that would have been a valuable asset, you know, of like we have all the Knives Out stories on Netflix. Yeah. But anyways, I'd recommend going watching it and checking it out. They're both a good, fun time. Yeah. So that wraps up all of my thoughts on Glass Lightning, and I can't wait to do an episode eventually on the original Knives Out film. Did you have any other thoughts? Um, so I want to go into this segment that we have done maybe once or twice before. It's where we read comments from people who have replied on our TikToks, our YouTube stories, or, or shorts, or even on our actual podcast episodes. So I believe you have three or four comments that you want to mention uh, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about them. Yeah, so while I read this first comment, do you want to bring Alex back in here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the first comment that I'll, I'll kind of set the scene for is we, were, we filmed an, uh, an episode about Avatar Way of Water and in it I did a term guide explaining just kind of the basic terminology for the movie so that everyone could be on board as we talked about these things. And the first thing that I mentioned is Pandora, which I called a planet. And even as this video climbed to have like 20,000 views on TikTok, we still only had one comment. And that comment just said, Pandora is a moon. Just no punctuation. <laughs> no, just flat. Pandora is a moon. And I was, <laughs> when I saw it, I just kind of laughed at it. Um, the person who responded to it said, yeah, I realized that after my astronomy class last semester, which I can't tell if that's funny and sarcastic or, or not. It's but, very hard to get a uh, positive comment yeah. on TikTok. I they feel just, like most people comment to kind of tear you down or correct a mistake. It, it has 2,000. It happens to me all the time because I get everyone's name wrong that we talk about, yeah. whether it's their character's name or the actual actor actress like i can't yeah. get their names right so people like to correct me all the time that uh that video actually did they do get you a little bit yeah. that, that video actually has 2356 likes which so it did pretty well for us and still like one of four com that those four comments or two of four, those four comments are just people insulting me for calling pandora a planet which, shame on you come you should have known like did you not do your research i'm not an astronomer like, people do you take this seriously people, or not people live on it i'm calling it a planet <laughs> pandora is the planet in my yeah. book <laughs> no one that i know has ever lived on a moon facts so yeah. I've, I've never heard of that either i've never even <laughs> been to a moon yeah but so we thought that one was really funny what's another one you got alex come up here come here alex so this the other comment which this is we're we're just <laughs> we're just looking at this one in good fun but uh, we had a a video where we our, our bullet train episode episode forty four and the TikTok we posted from it had Alex here in it this is Aaron's cat and the comment hi, the comment read is He's that a real cat. <laughs> <laughs> nope, stuffed animal. As you can tell, this is he was laying in front of Andrew over there. This is I our, guess he wasn't moving enough. This is our highly advanced animatronic cat 
that we brought for the, to bring some out. life into the set. Um, he's in play mode right now, so <laughs> he's been outside of the office for the last half of the podcast here, but we brought him back in, and now he's playing with all the chords and stuff. We, yeah, we don't mean to make fun and uh, discourage anyone from commenting on our videos, but I just thought that that was a really hilarious yeah. comment. It'd be this so is... funny if we had a fake cat. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is Alex, and he's going to be a... Uh, on the podcast quite a bit. So. He's going to be a, a real cat yeah. with us joining us for the podcast. <laughs> um, this one is the last funny one that I have here. So we, we again, this is from the Avatar Way of the Water episode. And we had a comment that said, because we discussed the plot of the movie, th- things said in the end of the movie, the comment said, spoiler alert in all caps, which we also had posted on the title of the video. So I said, LOL, yes, it's in the opening. And the response was so funny. It had us both rolling. The response was, my bad. I was high AF when I wrote that. I spaced out in the beginning. Don't hate me. (laughs) So I liked it and responded, I would never hate you. No worries. That's hilarious. (laughs) I love the don't hate me. (laughs) Yeah, we just want to say thanks for everyone who does consume our content in some way or another you know whether it's commenting liking sharing uh it's it's all appreciated so if you you comment on one of our things we'll we'll definitely get back to you but then we also might bring you up on the podcast as well even if you comment and correct us we're just we're happy to have the engagement guys thank you thank you comment and roast us all you want all right anything else you got andrew that's all i got for today all right that's a wrap. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. And, and that's, that's a wrap. wrap. <laughs>